Well, I can't believe that this year has gone so quickly and here we are right at the beginning of December and more importantly for me, we're in the season of Advent, preparation for the coming of the Savior. And, and I like to think that I would like Christmas every time it comes round to be fresh and, and, and new and glorious and profound. But as I have said a number of times throughout the course of this day, that sometimes something that once was so powerful and pertinent to our lives can become so familiar and so commonplace. But you know, the story of Jesus coming to the earth is the greatest news story that ever has been told. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Do we have any rejoicers in the room this evening? Jesus coming is good for us. As human beings, we need God to save us from ourselves. Left to our own devices, we have gone terribly wrong and God in his great and glorious kindness sent Jesus Christ to rescue us from selfishness, self-indulgence, hatred, greed, all of the things that you did before you got out of bed this morning. God has resolved them all. Hallelujah. Praise his name. And so every time it comes around, I pray and ask the Lord, what do you want to say to us that could be fresh for us or a different perspective on a familiar story? And I found myself arriving at the conclusion that my understanding of Christmas carols was a little bit limited. I thought they maybe happened around the times of Charles Dickens. You kind of think of them in that way, don't you? Hark the herald. Do you want to have a little blast of that just to wake yourself up? Oh, no, not you. Don't you start. <laughs> Hark the herald. Do you know it? Hark the herald angels sing. All right, don't ruin it for me. I used to like that song. But actually, the first Christmas carols are found in the scriptures. They're found in the lives of the people that encountered this glorious salvation. And uh, tonight I want to focus in on a particular man who began to declare and praise and give glory to God as a result of his recognition that the Messiah was coming. If you have a Bible with you, turn to the Gospel of Luke for me, please. In a little moment, we're going to read between verses 67 to 880 of chapter 1. Now, there are four Christmas carols in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And over the next few weeks, whenever I'm sharing around the story of Jesus coming to our earth at this Christmas time, I will be looking at those four songs, those four carols. But tonight, we're going to focus in on a snapshot of an individual's life that has a remarkable impact on the Christmas story. His name was Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was a priest in Jerusalem, and Luke chapter 1 tells us the story of how an angel predicted that he and his barren wife Elizabeth would give birth to a son who would indeed be the forerunner of the Messiah coming. Now, I don't know if you've had an angel turn up and give you that kind of news recently. Has anybody had an angel turn up recently? Yes, an angel's turned up recently. That's good news. But, you know, it's hard to believe when your humanity is confronted by God's capacity that what God says is going to come to pass. Isn't that true? We all like to think that we would immediately grasp the fullness of that invitation. But if you're honest with yourself, God's been prophetically speaking to many of us for years and we're still trying to believe, is it God? Is it not God? Does he love me? Does he not love me? You know, and these people had real massive moments in their lives and like you or I, they were just human and they had to come to terms with what was being said to them. And so, of course, in this story, 
Like is typical of human reason and logic, Zachariah did not believe what the angel of the Lord said to him. But when the baby was finally born, Zachariah named him John, just as he was instructed by the angel to do. What to do. And actually what happened from the minute he doubted to the minute his son was born, which obviously must have been around nine months. Would you think that's a fair guess? What do you think, ladies? Nine months-ish? Fair guess, okay. <laughs> he couldn't speak at all. Now, ladies, I know you dream of a man like this. But it must be very difficult to communicate with somebody who can't answer you. And the reality was that this, when the minute the, the boy was born, John was born, Zachariah broke forth in song. And this is that song of praise, this first Christmas carol that actually came to pass. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he said through his holy prophets a long time ago, salvation from our enemies and from our hand of all who hate us, he has come to show us mercy to those who are our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. And this is that oath, verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our oppressors and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him, we will live all the days of our lives. And you, my child, and this is him speaking to his son, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. Imagine having that said over you when you're only eight weeks old. That's quite phenomenal, isn't it? For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into a path of peace, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he was appeared publicly in Israel. So when you hear these words, no doubt like me, when you hear them in that kind of context, you realized that this man, Zechariah, was very, very well rehearsed with the Old Testament. In fact, his vocabulary is full of Old Testament clarity. And he breaks into song. And he's breaking into song because as he reflects on the faithfulness of God and the power of God to bring forth his plan, he is absolutely taken up in the Holy Spirit and he can't help himself but exalt the Lord. It may sound a little strange to us, the vocabulary that he's using, but it has deep and profound depth in the reality of the Jewish faith. And here he is, pretty much near the eve of the Messiah's coming, and it's the first time in the longest period of time that God's voice and God's plan is starting to become clear. Up until this point, it had been 400 years since the people of Israel had heard God speak to them. And now right at this moment, Zechariah is on the edge of a brand new reality, and that is the Messiah has come. In many ways, Zechariah symbolizes the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he stands in this moment declaring a new day is coming and God has kept his promises and his people will be redeemed and his plan will come to pass. Is there anybody excited about that? Now, 
Here we have to pay attention to a couple of things to help us understand the depth of this man's faith. This is just a few months, as I said, before Jesus' birth. But there's one key phrase in Zechariah's song that I want us to just pay attention to. In verse 68, this is what he says. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. In verse 78, a little bit further down, you'll see this phrase. The rising sun will come to us from heaven. Now, what I want to suggest to you, church, is that they may not be particularly significant to us, but actually what he is doing, what Zechariah is declaring, is that this visit from heaven, this visit of the Messiah is personal. God is turning up personally. In fact, he's using the very same word that Jesus used in Matthew 25, verse 36, when he said this, I was sick and you visited me. In other words, you came to me personally. Now imagine the scene. This is an older man. He's been believing for years that God would keep his promises. He has a legacy and a history, a wealth and an understanding of the coming of the Messiah. And yet year after year, decade after decade in his life, he has not seen with his eyes the fulfillment of the promise of God. A song comes to mind, maybe you've heard it. It's been a long time coming. But I know there's going to be a change. That's it, thank you. It's been a long time coming. Now, what he's trying to say is this, that God is so moved by the misery of humanity that he is turned up personally. Aren't you grateful that God is moved by your misery? Now, some of you are professionally miserable. That's a whole other subject. We'll come back to that later. But you know, there is some form of misery in our humanity. Paul picks it up in the New Testament when he says words like this, O wretched man that I am, I do not do the things I want to do, but the things I don't want to do, those are the very things I keep on doing. Now in a few weeks' time, you're going to face that reality. When the clock strikes 12 at the end of this year and a new one comes, you're going to make a lot of promises to yourself. You might make them to some other people too. Now how many of us noticed that although we're well-meaning in those moments, by the time January the 3rd comes, you're back on the chocolate diet. <laughs> you haven't restored whatever it is you thought you'd restored, and that exercise program that you bought, or even that exercise bike that you got for Christmas, is sitting, and it's very handy for putting your clothes on when you go to bed. But the reality is here that Zachariah is so excited so excited, so overwhelmed, so profoundly taken up with the reality that what God has promised has come to pass. He has come to visit his people. He's declaring, God, you have kept your promise. You've arrived in our world. You've turned up in our brokenness. A visitor from heaven full of power and authority has come to rescue humanity from the slavery of sin. Now, it's hard for us to grasp the significance of his prayer or indeed his carol or song because the magnitude of his declaration is indeed directly connected to the length of time it has been since God has spoken. God's people for many, many years believed he would come. But over time and over history, it looked like God had neglected them. They were rejected, overlooked, despised. 
Nearly a thousand years had passed by now since the glorious days of King David when Israel was a, a force to be reckoned with. And now right in this context, the greatness of Israel, its historical profoundness, seems like a distant memory or a legacy left behind as the Roman Empire begin to rule their lives with great vigor and indeed ferocity. And in the midst of that context, Zechariah is singing. And it's definitely, it's been a long time coming, but change. Thank you, our American friend, thank you very much. Now, along that journey, it would be important for us to highlight this truth. And it's the truth, I think, that is a reality for all of us, that God promises and many of us forget. God promises and many of us do not live with a great sense of clarity or indeed purpose on a day-by-day -day basis. But there's always a group of people. The Bible refers to them as a remnant. A group of people amongst the people that somehow are holding on to the promise of God. In spite of the adversities, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the history, in spite of the many things that have happened over the course of that time, there always seems to be a remnant. And a remnant is necessary and indeed a prerequisite for all that God wants to do. So many years had gone, so many sons had been buried, their fathers too. In fact, their sons buried them and yet the Messiah had not turned up. Generation after generation, trying to hold on and hang on for all that God wanted to do. And yet, there was no reality. The flickering flame of a prophetic word given to a people seemed very dim and far away. And many would question, will God keep his promises? Will God turn up as he has declared he will? And this crucial moment comes when Zechariah, a man who thought he'd never have a son, promised by the angel that his wife would bear him one. And not only that, that this son would herald the coming of the Messiah and prepare a way for the Messiah to fully extend his capacity. He stands in a moment of baby dedication, if you like, holding his son in his arms and dreaming the dreams that every father has, except these are God's dreams that this child will grow up in the power of the Spirit to open up and declare to this world and indeed to the heart of Jerusalem that God is faithful to his people. The long wait is over. God is coming here. This song or this carol is about the declaration of a new heavenly orchestration where God's manifest presence in and through Jesus Christ would invade every part of their lives. Now let me take you to the psalm itself. The psalm itself identifies for us a number of declarations that he is making. Look at verse 68 with me, please. You see, here Zechariah is focusing on the purpose of the Messiah coming. Why has Christ come to earth? Well, it's pretty clear to us in retrospect that he has come to save his people. But Zechariah mentions this saving work in four different ways. In verse 68, he uses this phrase, he has come to redeem his people. In other words, God has come to make good his promises of redemption to his people. 
Aren't you glad that that's a truth for you also? The second thing we find is in verse 69. He has raised a horn of salvation. In other words, he has declared and proclaimed and provided salvation for us. Jesus came to redeem, but he also came to declare that salvation is amongst us. Emmanuel, God with us, the power of God unto salvation afforded to us. Look again at verse 71. It says that he has come to forgive our sins. The Messiah is coming to make all things new, to restore all that has been lost over many years in man's heart as he relates and thinks of God. And he has come to forgive our sins. He's also come, look at verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So Zechariah, standing at a moment, a precipice of a new day where the promise of God and the reality of the Messiah, in spite of many tens of years, hundreds of years, he is declaring over his boy and over his life and indeed over his nation, it has been a long time coming, but God has come. God is here to forgive sins, to bring the knowledge of salvation through forgiveness, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Aren't you glad that Jesus can do that? To raise up a horn of salvation, and he has come to redeem us. What from? Ourselves, our sin, and our brokenness. So we see that the purpose of the Messiah coming is salvation. Can I just say to you tonight, if you don't know salvation is available to you, it would be wrong of me to gloss past this moment and not invite you to consider it. Can I offer you some conclusions about our attempts for salvation? Here's how we work that out. I'll try and be a better person. Anybody tried to save themselves like that? Come on, give me a wave, talk to me. Or I'll do good things for other people. Somehow that will make me right with God. Here's another little trick the enemy plays. Well, if I go to church enough, surely I'll be okay with God. How's that working for you? There is only one way that your sins can be forgiven. Only one person who can forgive them. There is nothing you can do about this except say, yes, Jesus, I receive you as my savior. Come and save me from myself. Come and save me from my sins. Come and heal my heart. Come and restore my life to its original purpose and design. You can't save yourself and nobody else can save you. And no activity or religious practice could ever give you what the Messiah offers you. Salvation has come and is come only through Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world. God promised he would rescue you and he sent Jesus Christ to do so. Amen. If you don't know him as your savior tonight, invite him to become so. And you may not think you need saving, but let me highlight to you something that perhaps hasn't been said to you before. You most definitely do. Let me tell you why. Because you are an incredibly good sinner. With all of your best attempts to avoid it, your default is always to do what pleases you selfishly, even at the cost of hurting those around you in your life. You are selfish to your core. Not somebody and say, I think he's talking to you. 
And here's the problem with that. Unless we admit we're sinners, we have no need of a Savior. And I think there's been an erosion in the church of speaking about the sinfulness of man who is separated from God. I'm not apologizing to say that you and I are sinners and without hope in ourselves to change anything about that. Because there is a better new story, and that is that Christ the Messiah has come to redeem us from that. Jesus came so that salvation could be yours. Don't go home tonight without inviting him to forgive you for your sins. And just in case you're thinking you're slightly better than the person sitting next to you, and maybe you need a, a lighter form of salvation, or maybe a veneer of salvation, can I highlight this to you? The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have this incredible song where Zechariah declares the purpose of God to bring salvation to mankind. The second thing I notice about this song is that Zechariah is caught up with the most glorious thought, and that is simply this, that God had proclaimed this prophetically many years before. As a godly Jew, Zechariah can't get over that fact. In fact, he's going over it and over it and over it in this dialogue. God, you said this would happen and it's come to pass. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment in your life where God has promised you something and you've waited and you've journeyed and you've waited and you've journeyed and you've fasted and you've prayed and you even went to all of the Bible studies. You, you were so radically believing that God would do what he would do, you turned up at the prayer meeting. It's got to be serious. And so much time has passed and the promise is faded like an old photograph of a relative that you once knew in your childhood. And you look back and you think, God, what happened? And Zechariah is taking out that promise and he's declaring it over his son and he's declaring it over the people of Israel and he's saying this, God, it's now begun. It's now begun. What you said has come to pass. You know, the Bible says that God's promises are yes. The problem is we don't always say amen. Now, saying amen is simply this. It's saying, I'm coming into partnership with your promise. Amen isn't a phrase we use at the end of a fancy prayer. It's so much more expansive than that. We're saying, God, you have spoken. Now I'm in alignment and agreement. Expectancy, joy, and hope for that to become a reality. You see, that's amen. Let's try it. Amen. God has promised you some things. Has anybody got a prophetic word that you're still waiting to see fulfilled in your life? Give me a wave if that's you. A promise from the scripture that is yet to come to pass. How are you doing with your amen? No, I'm not talking about just saying it. We've got to come into alignment and partnership and connection and hope and joy and expectation with it. Because an amen is our response to a promise from God. And Zechariah is looking at this promise from God and he's shouting out from his soul in the midst of a moment where everything's coming together according to God's purpose and plan and he's shouting out a glorious amen. Amen. Amen, Father. Amen, Yahweh. Amen, glorious God. What you have said have come to pass. And he says three things about this promise that's worthy of attention to us. The first thing he says in verse 70 is this. It was promised by the prophets. The phrase here is this. As he has said through his holy prophets, 
long ago. You know, church, can I just say something to you? A day is coming and is upon us when we need the prophets to rise up amongst us. It's time for God to be heard amongst his people. Now we have all kinds of teaching and we have all kinds of interactions with his word. But you know, all of that is brilliant. But how much more do we need in a day of uncertainty and a lack of clarity to hear the voice of the King of Kings speak gloriously? Here's what prophecy does. Prophecy gives you an authority to become what God has declared to be your destiny. Prophecy opens up possibility and reminds your problems they're only stepping stones or a ladder into the promises of God. Prophecy awakens faith. It stirs curiosity. It invites you to conversation and fellowship. Come on, wake up, please. Prophecy is exactly what we need in this hour. We need God to speak. We need him to declare a thing. We need him to pronounce a coming of all that is going to take place in our world. Otherwise, we will just muddle through or get by whenever God has so much more to give us than anything that you or I could conjure up as a possible way forward. You need to hear the voice of the Lord. And if you hear his voice, do not let your disappointment steal it from you. If you hear his voice, do not let your sense of disconnect from what God is doing rob it from you. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but allow God to speak gloriously into your life that you may come into partnership with him expectantly for all that he wants to do. We say, Lord, speak. Your servants are listening. Father, speak to us again. Remind us of your truth. Promises of old and promises anew. God, speak to us, we say, and make all things new in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. So this promise that's come to pass was prophesied many years before. God is faithful even when we have forgotten what he has promised. The second thing he tells us is that those who have gone before him cherish these words. In verse 72, it says this, it was cherished by their fathers why? Because this is the phrase he uses, to show mercy to our fathers. The prophecy kept their fathers in a position of expectancy, and it still has the power to do so today. The third thing is this, that it was a guaranteed oath. Do you know when God says he's going to do something, you can really build your life on that? Three of us are excited about that. When God says something, you can depend on that. You can rely on that. You can trust that. You can move house because of that. You can leave your job because of it. When God speaks to you, you can marry that man with a face like a bag of spanners. God is not a man that he should lie. For every word that comes for him leads us to life. It leads us to fullness and it leads us to blessing. What's the point? God, you have covenanted, you have prepared, you have prophesied, and now today your presence is here on the earth. Everybody knew that this would come, they just didn't know how it would come or when it would come. So Zechariah is telling us something very crucial. God has visited us. He has promised to us the Messiah, and he has turned up amongst us with glorious power to transform all of us. And that's the next thing I want to highlight in this song. So God has provided salvation. 
Amen. Anybody need that tonight? Anybody grateful for that tonight? Anybody thankful to God that He has done so for you and given to us tonight? And God has clearly fulfilled His promise through a prophecy given long ago. Is there anybody tonight who's slightly, vaguely thankful that when God speaks, He means what He says and He does what He promises? Is there anybody here tonight who needs to be reminded that those promises are always yes? That His full intent is behind them? That the weight of heaven's glory is available for them? And all He's waiting for is your regular, consistent, and curious Amen on a daily basis. Prophecy does not come to pass because it was spoken. It comes to pass because God has declared it and we have received it and embraced it. And when those partnerships take place, it may have been a long time coming, but change is gone. Amen. And the third dynamic of this first Christmas carol regarding the salvation and the coming to earth of the Messiah that is worthy of our attention is simply found in verses 74 and 75, where Zachariah starts to declare the transforming power that is available through the Messiah coming to earth. It says that his coming produces emotional transformation. Look at the phrase where it says that we will be able to serve him without fear. Do you think a time is coming when the church needs to serve him without fear? Do you think a time is now where the church needs to serve him without fear? Can I tell you how we get to that place? The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that it's perfect love that drives out all fear. So the revelation I have of God's love for me, the revelation I have in relationship with Him, will make me live courageously. If I notice fear in my heart, if I notice fear in my interactions with the world around me, it's because I have not been made perfect in love. I need God to do a work in me. You see, love builds a confidence in me. It builds a courage in me. It builds a determination and it offers a clarity to me. Love provides for me a platform to live from that's secure. Here's how that looks. The whole world may be against me, but God is for me. I may be misunderstood in every quarter of my life, but He who created me knows me. He loves me. He abides in me. He rejoices over me with singing. He quiets me with His love. His affection is afforded to me consistently. Here's what that produces. I don't live timidly in the world in which God's placed me because the God who abides in me gloriously has transformed my internal world to one that is confident and clear and certain because his love for me is steadfast. So Zechariah is saying this salvation that will come, it will come with power to change us from the inside out. It's been a long time coming. Thinking we've got a double act going on here tonight. Are you free next week? Because I'm going to preach this somewhere else. <laughs> Are you getting excited? Okay, that's good. So this salvation produces emotional transformation. Is there anyone here tonight who has recognized that because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, you actually are quite a different person? Has anybody changed at all? Has anything changed at all? You know, one of the most remarkable changes in my life, it's hard to believe when you hear me gabbing on like this, 
But actually, I was frightened of my own voice. I know, I knew you wouldn't believe me. By natural disposition, I'm quiet. <laughs> I told you, you wouldn't believe me. And I'm a contemplator and a reflector and a melancholic. God has made me very kind of melancholic in the way I see the world. I could write Ecclesiastes quite well, I think. Oh, woe to me. <laughs> yes, I'm a poet and a, a dreamer. And, and because of all of those internal realities, when I came to know Jesus Christ, the way I live my life on a daily basis, I wouldn't speak to people, I wouldn't talk to people, which was ironic because I have been a singer for most of my life. And here's how it would go. I would run the set of my songs where I didn't have to introduce them. <laughs> straight into the next introduction, straight into the, I didn't want to speak publicly. And you know, within the first three weeks of my salvation, I was on the streets of Hansworth in Birmingham. Anybody know Hansworth in Birmingham? declaring that Jesus Christ had saved me. This wonderful man called Amrick, who was a street evangelist, spotted me in the church and dragged me, I mean, invited me out with him on a Sunday or Saturday afternoon. And I was on the Wogan show on the Friday night and I was on Hansworth Street corner on a Saturday afternoon, witnessing to a whole bunch of people about the reality of Jesus. God changes us from the inside out. When salvation comes, we become who we're truly meant to be not crippled anymore by insecurity, not confined by the words spoken over you and me. When God speaks a truth into us, we become the people we were intended to be. Amen. Salvation brings an emotional transformation. The second thing that he identifies is that salvation produces an ethical transformation. It says that in these days, in holiness and righteousness, we will live all our lives. You see, when God moves into your life, all of his power to become like him is available to you. Now, I don't know how you worked with this, but when I first became a Christian, the things I thought needed to go, I tried to work on, but they didn't seem to be able to go. But God began to put his finger on areas of my heart and my life, and without realizing it, as I stepped into agreement with him, my life started to change. I began to think differently. I began to act differently. You know, I began to speak differently. You know, I come from an Irish family and every second word is a swear word. And so I found it really difficult to be at home whenever that used to happen. I would be like this all the time. My mother would use five swear words just to ask you to put the kettle on. You know, that it just came out like a, like a machine gun some days. And you know, when I first became a Christian, that didn't bother me, but as the Spirit began to work in my life, as holiness turned up in my heart, the biggest problem wasn't the swear words, but to use the name of Jesus in a manner and a way that I found really difficult. And I don't know if you know any Irish mothers, but you don't correct them. So I would be there in the kitchen with her as she's talking to me, and I'd be going... And what I thought was an internal problem, she clearly sees an external problem. And she said, have you got stomach ache, Simon? What's wrong with you? Is there something wrong with you? Are you in pain? What's going on with you? I tried to hide it really well, but when the Holy One comes to live inside you, and the things that were so commonplace to you prior to that reality are still in your life, 
God's holiness starts to rise in our hearts. I'm always confident that he who began a good work in us, if we allow him to, will carry it on until it's completed. We just have to work with his program, not try and get him to work with ours. So it changes us emotionally. It changes us transformationally and ethically. And it changes us spiritually. It changes us so much that we stop just serving our own interests and start to serve his. The fourth thing that's in this is the dynamic of preparation for all that is to come. Look in verses 76 and 77 with me. And Zechariah considers the significance of his infant son as he holds him in his arms and begins to recognize all that God has promised has turned up. And this little baby boy, this boy called John, and as you know as I do, having read the scriptures many years, this boy turned into a man who heralded the coming of a Messiah. And of all ministries that have ever taken place on the planet, he surely had one of the most remarkable ones. How many of us know that you can't get people out to church so easily? But John the Baptist didn't have microphones or lights or comfortable seats. Guess where his pulpit was? In the desert place. And people would walk for days to hear what he had to say. Even the Pharisees and the scribes who disagreed with some of the things he was suggesting turned up and he would say things like this. He was always very PC. You brood of vipers. Who told you about the coming wrath of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I don't recommend that you open up that kind of conversation when you're trying to reach people. But it would seem to me that sensitivity wasn't in his nature. Primarily because he was an evangelist. Heralding a new day and heralding a new way. And heralding a promise from God. Zechariah looks his son in the face as he's about to give thanks to God in heaven for him. And he says, my son, you are a prophet of the Most High God. You will be used gloriously in the days that come ahead. My son, you will prepare the way of the Lord. You will go on before the Messiah and make a way for him, even in the desert places. My son, you will proclaim the knowledge of salvation by preaching the forgiveness of sins to give his people the knowledge of salvation through their sins being forgiven. And that's exactly what John did. His whole mission, his whole life, his whole preparation, his whole declaration was actually heralding and announcing the coming of the Messiah. He was a prophet, he was a preparer, he was a preacher, and he was a proclamatory individual who opened up the kingdom of the heaven, making a moment so available for Jesus to step into all that God had indeed asked him to do. And you'll know the story as well as I do. When he sees Jesus for the first time, having grown this incredible ministry and this fabulous reputation and hundreds of people coming to a place of repentance, he uses this phrase, I must decrease as he increases. You can see clearly in the stature of the character of this man, he was not trying to make a name for himself but he knew there was a name above every other name. And at that name, every knee will bow, even his, to the glory of God the Father in heaven. And so we have one last part of the song. Can you bear another verse and chorus? Would that be okay? One final burst of praise comes from Zachariah's lips. 
one final declaration of all that salvation can mean, one final annunciation and proclamation of the goodness of God. He says in verse 78 that the Messiah is coming to bring its, his light to those who are in darkness. The verse says the rising sun will come to us from heaven. When we live in our sin and we live outside of relationship with God, we are living in darkness. We are wandering around in the dark, in the dead of night, trying to find a way or a place or something that will give us and offer us some kind of hope. But when the Messiah comes, when salvation comes, our eyes are opened, our hearts are enlightened. I love the words of an old hymn. I used to sing it as a boy and I've sung it most of my life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In other words, there was a time in my life that I lived with a glorious dimness, an incredible inability to understand or perceive. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved me from that reality, saved a wretch like me. And he uses this phrase, the hymn writer, he says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. In other words, I had no hope, but you came to rescue me. I was in the middle of my willfulness and my disobedience, and you stepped into the road ahead of me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm brought into this glorious reality of Christ. And listen to this phrase, I was blind, but now I see. Isn't it the truth that when Christ the Messiah comes to us, we recognize how blind we were prior to his visit? This little baby has come to earth and man, Woman, child, everyone believes that what they're doing is the right thing. We wouldn't do it otherwise. And yet Jesus illuminates our foolishness, our willfulness, our pride and our disobedience. And I love it when the light comes on because things that I couldn't find in the dark suddenly become available. You see, when the light comes on, it's not just the elimination of the darkness. It's the illumination of the purposes of God. Suddenly when the light switched on in a human heart and you see clearly, you start to recognize that God had a plan all along, that the steps of the righteous have been ordained of the Lord and from everlasting to everlasting, he's been working that plan out with you and for you. When I reflect back on my journey, I realize that all those years in show business were preparation for what God wanted to do in my life. Being able to communicate and to talk and to engage with people is something that is not natural to me, but it's become supernaturally available to me. And I realized that God was providing for me a platform to learn my craft for the days and the times and the seasons that lay ahead of me. I had no idea they would come. I did not even want them, to be honest with you. And I often have to pinch myself because I don't know how I ended up here. I only came out for a loaf of bread. It's amazing where you end up when God begins to open up revelation of who he is. The second thing is this, that he came to pardon and to forgive those and to release those who death had grips upon. It says in verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. While we were separated from him, we had no hope. But if you're a Christian here tonight, if you're a follower of Jesus, if the light has come, if the Messiah has turned up, if the promise has been fulfilled to you, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You have a security with God that is absolutely profound. Someone say amen to that. And the third thing he does 
is this in this part of his profound declaration of the impact of the Messiah. It says that he came to guide those who had lost their ways, to guide our feet into the pathway of peace. So as we come to this Advent season, this incredible ordinary man trying to live the best life he could for God is impacted by all that God is doing, all that God has promised, and indeed the very visible, tangible evidence that the Messiah is near. Jesus is coming into his world. In fact, I would say that Christ is a sight for his sore eyes. In other words, everything he hoped for, longed for, dreamed for, or believed would come to pass is now about to happen. And the thing that we need to understand is that nothing like this had ever taken place prior or indeed for us and our benefit ever since or after. There is but one Messiah. There is but one salvation. There is but one restoration. There is but one prophecy and declaration. There is but one transformation. It's all found in the reality of the one who is the one, who is above all other names, and at his name your knee will bow, and my tongue will confess, and together we will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this Christmas, this Christmas, let the reality of Christ among you and with you become more visible and tangible as the days roll on. It's not about tinsel. It's certainly not about presents. As I get older, I get less presents. When I was younger, I used to get many. It's a hint. It's a hint in case you're not listening. Okay. I can give you sizes, preferences. Just line up at the end of the service. I'm only kidding. In fact, the older I get, the more that stuff seems to be less and less important. And for me, the real passionate reality of Christmas is not just a memory that Christ came into our world to do all that we've discussed tonight he can do and continues to do. But actually, he has chosen to make my heart and my life his dwelling place here on earth. Enter into the spirit of Christmas, which is the spirit of salvation and joy and hope and declaration that God has come to save us from our sins to heal us in our hearts, to transform us from the inside out, and to keep the promises he made to us all those years ago. He's not finished yet in completing all that he has started.